Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, Amplify producer at Nottingham Playhouse. The show you're going to hear today was recorded in the sun-dappled days of summer 2020, and it's been in our archives since then. So if some of the references you hear feel a bit out of date, that's why. Nevertheless, this is a cracking conversation with the brilliant Rebecca Gatwood. Enjoy the show. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you for joining us today on the Amplify podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, how are you? Yes, I'm all right. It's a lovely day out out of the window. My uh, my tree is dancing nicely in the breeze. I've gotten to know the tree outside the window here very well indeed. I feel like we're really friends now. I know. Um, yeah, it's good, isn't it? I, I've got a lot of trees outside my bedroom window, actually, and it is a blessing to have a view. Um, but what does social distancing look like for you? What have you been up to? I'm, I've been editing. Um, I literally finished a shoot on Wednesday the 11th of March um, and so was expecting to sort of go into Soho and start my edits in Soho. And I think I went into Soho on the Friday at the end of my shoot week and that was and went into the edit suite and that was the only time I've ever been there. So we were then removed. We were told we all had to start working remotely. And so that was that was quite complicated. So a lot a lot of the editors had to take their had to take the computers back to their houses, get the avids up in their houses and um and then we've been sort of editing um via Zoom, such screen sharing essentially. So I've been watching the editor make edits and speaking over a microphone like we're doing now. And so I've sort of I'm in that sense I'm lucky that I've got to finish my shoot and I've been in in work for the last few weeks. Um, also got the virus and have been recovering. So essentially been working from my sick bed, <laughs> which, which has been fine, actually. You know, I've made two teleprograms in that time. <laughs> so it's not too bad, you know. And has it been a good process? We're working over Zoom that way. You've made it, you've made it work? Yeah, we have made it work. I mean, it's it's sort of very interesting because I've, in the past, I have flown to Glasgow to sit in an edit suite with an editor. You know, and you think of the money that production is, are spending to fly you up and back every week, to put you up in a flat every week, you know, to pay you uh, per diems and all that, for you to sit in an edit suite somewhere else. And actually, what I've realised, I mean, there's nothing like the sort of interaction of being in the room with somebody and the creative decisions being made in the same space. But, you know, I think it's it's completely possible to work in this way and I think it will open up you know everybody's eyes to the fact that I mean there's certainly if anybody says to me oh and by the way the edits in Glasgow or the edits in Liverpool or the edits you know I will I will sort of raise an eyebrow and say I'm really not prepared to do that because being away from your family for all that time is kind of crazy anyway but certainly when you can be just as productive and do it at home it doesn't make any sense you know and it was, and it saved them lots of money. So yeah, it's been fine. Obviously, you are a director of television and of the theatre. But where did yes. that start for you, Rebecca? Where did you grow up? I grew up um, in Saffron Walden in Essex. When I was, I, I mean, I started off in Yorkshire, and then we moved down south. And my dad was an English and drama teacher, so 
he used to kind of take me to the theatre. I mean, I remember going to see plays from very, very young and apparently sat through a production of Romeo and Juliet at the age of about three without fidgeting and was just completely spellbound by it. Um, and my parents used to use kind of drama lessons as cheap babysitting. Um, so they'd sort of chuck me in there and, I, you know, I, and I would do that. And I think for a while I thought I wanted to be an actor because I, I sort of loved the group activity of being in plays and rehearsing plays. Um, and certainly I went off to university to do English and drama um, and still thought at that stage that maybe I would I would be a um, an actor, although I really loved painting as well. Um, so that was the other sort of passion. Um, and I couldn't quite decide which it was going to be. And then I think I finished my drama degree and didn't quite and where, know. Where did you go? Which university uh, did you end up I went at? to the University of East Anglia. Uh, in Norwich and you know which was fantastic and and the reason I went there was because I remember walking around the campus and seeing a bunch of drama students making do, performing work in the middle of the, the square there was no theatre at the University of East Anglia at that time um, so people were making work wherever they could you know we I can remember we, we used the laundrette as a performance space and you know you hmm. just we would just make work wherever so wherever we could, so there was a sort of an, an incredible energy to that sort of desire to perform um, that was happening at, at UEA at that time. So, and that's um, what, were you were you just performing when you were at university, or was that when you started directing as well? No, I didn't direct. When I did my degree, I didn't direct. I was just performing at that stage, and then I can remember having. I stayed in Norwich. And I had a year out. And I was working for Norfolk County Council as an arts worker, doing sort of art and drama lessons and things. And I was a bit disaffected. You know, I suddenly realized it was the first time in my life I didn't have any structure to my days in that way that you do when you're a student or when you're at school. And and I can remember thinking, well, I want to, I want to be in a play. and But there wasn't, you know, I couldn't, I either wasn't being cast or there weren't enough plays going on or... And in the end, a friend of mine said to me, why don't you do one? Why don't you direct one? So I did. I found a play that I wanted to do. And I, I found Fernando Arabelle's Fando and Liz, which had five people wow, in it. Wow, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, um, that's, a, that's, a that's a remarkable play to find. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, and, was, uh, it, was, it was an extraordinary piece. And, and it, I think it struck me because it's really about domestic violence, essentially. It's a surrealist play, but it's, you know, there's a sort of domestic violence relationship at the heart of it and I found that really fascinating and I had some some so I just got a bunch of people together and put it on and it was really successful and I suddenly realized as I was doing it that I could sort of paint and I could do the rehearsal process which was the thing I loved and actually performing was the thing that I really didn't like that much I never got the buzz at the end in the way that at the curtain call, I was just was relieved it was over. I just get terribly nervous before it started. So it, you, that was the sort of epiphany for me was that you know that directing fulfilled all the things that I sort of loved doing in one go. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean when you said you could paint. Do you mean making images with people? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Making images with people, painting with light when you put you know when you put the show on technically. 
um, often it was, you know, I was very drawn to doing very theatrical work that was, that is, you know, that was very physical uh, because it's, you know, making a virtue of the, the sense that there could is nowhere else it could be rather than on stage. So it was about painting with people and images and light and set and costume and the, and the sort of coming together of all of those elements to create essentially moving paintings or moving pictures, if you like. And so a lot of the work that I've done in the theatre has definitely had a very visual side. You know, it's very, that's been where I've often started. Um, and often I sort of, you know, when you have that, a lot of my, a lot of my sort of ideas come in that period between sleep and wake when you're just either waking up or falling to sleep. I'll, I'll see pictures, and mm -hmm. often I'll, I'll problem solve things in a production or in a television show that I'm struggling with in that moment. And and that was where I, you know, I'd be able to take that into the rehearsal room the next day and go, right, you know, that moment we were struggling with yesterday, I've cracked it because this is what we need to do. <laughs> So it, you know, often it is. I think in definitely think in pictures, which is why it was also a sort of natural transition to start working in film, um, because that is a is such a such a visual medium. Do you find yourself when you're when you're making a production or when you're uh, about to embark on making a piece of television or a film? Do you 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 do you use references from the visual art world a lot to help build the world in your head? Um, yes, I do actually. Um, more so, you know, it's, it's interesting in television because a lot of people say to you, what, what are your film references for this, this script? And I could never think in those terms because I only ever, when I read a script, I see pictures. And if the script isn't any good, I don't see the pictures. So hmm. when a script's really working, all the pictures will come to me. But quite often, if I'm looking for the world of where I'm going to set something or I'm, set, I'm setting up either a television show or doing a new play, it will be... Um, it will be me trawling through images. So I'll go to um, to either artists, visual artists, photographers. Um, sometimes it's just, you know, I'll be doing kind of Google image searches and putting images together that strike me. Sometimes I don't even know why. Um, I really love making Pinterest boards with my designers. Um, and I've done that both in television and in, in theatre where... You know, I'll just pin images that, that mean something to me and the designer will pin images and we'll kind of have a kind of visual conversation of pictures between each other to find the world of what we're doing. Um, and then I often include the costume, you know, costume designer and makeup designer in those boards as well so that everybody's on the same page with where we're starting to go. And gradually through that process, we start to discuss it and refine what the world is going to be. Yeah, and there is there is a real uh, sense of like uh, I don't I don't want to sound too wanky about it, but like the, the dramaturgy of the image. I mean, certainly to yeah. me as a, as an, a, a person who very occasionally makes theatre, um, uh, that world of visual art is very important. But also the language that comes with it. So, for example, John Burge's book on um, on seeing, I think it's mm. called. Do you know do you know what I mean? Yes, uh, where I do, he yeah. sort of explains the tradition of art and uh, uh, the ideas of composition. I found that I found that really important in sort of being able to understand how that visual language can uh, uh, embed meaning and um, uh, tell stories in a sort of subcutaneous way. One of the questions I've been asking everyone, and I'd really love to know your thoughts on this, um, especially around this idea of the visual image and having a um, 
a, a, a dictionary, if you like, or a reference point of visual art in your head when you're making a piece of work. Are there any uh, books or reference points that are particularly important to you or were particularly important to you at the beginning of your career as a maker of things? Yes, I suppose the most important piece, I mean, in terms of directing, it's not necessarily to do with the visual, with the visual side of things, but in terms of my feeling about being a director, the most important um, piece of, of writing that I read that really spoke to me was Heinrich von Kleist's little essay called On the Marionette Theatre. And what is fascinating about that is that it talks about how an actor, it's really about the process of an actor and the process of that kind of relationship uh, of consciousness and how a director should treat an actor to make sure that the it's really, I suppose it's also about the sort of, that being in the creative zone which we get into, um, which you, you want the actor to be in and I want to be in, and it's about not becoming too conscious, if you see what I mean. So, for example, in the essay, Heinrich von Kleist describes watching a young man in a gymnasium who is looking at himself in the mirror, and he just puts his leg up onto a stool, and as he does so, he catches himself in the mirror and thinks oh my God, I did that really gracefully. And he then tries to repeat it. But because he's become conscious of what he did, he can't. <laughs> so so my, as a director, I am always incredibly careful not to, um, not to say too much to my actors. If, I, if I'm getting wonderful work from an actor I'm not about to go over to them and say oh my god that was amazing when you did this because I'll make them conscious of it and they'll never be able to do it again so I have to be it's always a process of examining and exploring and provoking and questioning um, to tease out things that I need from an actor but for god's sake if an actor's doing brilliant work do not mess with it as a director <laughs> and how do you um how do you manage that gap between i suppose uh not killing the frog as freud would have it which i think is what you're talking about if yeah. you, you know if yeah. you dissect the frog you end up with a dead frog yeah. um, which is fair enough but also ensuring that people are aware that they're doing good work well i think it's i try and create a very nurturing rehearsal room um i try and make my rehearsal room um, and my floor, if I'm directing television, really good fun. Uh, nobody is ever, uh, there's no criticism, there's no judgment. Nobody is ever um, uh, meant to feel uncomfortable. I want people to explore things. I want people to try things. If an actor comes up and says, can I try this? I always say yes. Um, I, there are occasions where I have to get tough if somebody you know, is messing about or they haven't learned their lines and they're holding everybody else up and they need a bit of a bollocking, then, you know, occasionally that will come out of the bag as one of my little uh, weapons. And because I don't do it very often, it does tend to make people sit up and go, oh, blimey, she's a bit cross today. We better get on with that. But essentially, my it's about play. I really believe that we're so lucky that we're able to, you know, we do jobs where we're just basically playing like children and if I create an environment where everybody's allowed to play and create and offer ideas and explore um, 
within the confines of the schedule and the time frame that you're working in, obviously. That's what I want. And so as a result, I tend to get very natural, joyful, connected performances from my actors. Um, and because it's playful, I'm allowing within a kind of structure of what story are we telling and what do the what do these moments and these beats mean? I'm I don't want people just to just to have to sort of absolutely repeat the same thing until it's dead. I want people to continue to explore and to create and to find things. And to and that you only get that by sort of really listening and really responding and being alive to things in the moment. And I think that's what I'm always searching for. So I can see if an actor suppresses an instinct. I always know when they've done it. And I'll go over and I'll say, you suppressed an instinct to sit down there or to stand or to move over there or to, you know, to do something. I can see, and they, I may not know exactly what it was, but I know when they've stopped themselves doing something. And, and they're always slightly surprised with it. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> you caught me out there. Um, so I, I encourage people never to do that and to always explore you know it's not always right but but as long as we have the time then you want you i want that kind of conversation to be able to happen um that's the most important thing then i think you don't you you allow everything to be alive and to keep breathing does that make sense no absolutely it's super clear and just so going back uh, a little bit in time so you've you've made the arabal in in norwich yeah. and then what then what happens so then I decided that because I had really spent um, my first three years of my degree having a marvellous time and without any sort of real direction or focus, I decided that I would go back to university. My university was starting up an MA in theatre direction. And so I decided to do that part time over two years and I carried on working for Norfolk County Council um, and sort of put myself through this MA, which was an opportunity to learn about directing to read a lot of the books that I'd failed to read the first time round when I was doing my drama degree <laughs> and we had a lot of visiting directors coming and giving masterclasses and workshops because it was the first couple of years of this new MA they sort of threw a lot of money at it I think and you know we had Cicely Berry came for three weeks to work with us I had um, three days with John Retallick, Mike Alfred came, uh, Max Stafford-Clark came. We had, you know, a huge array of the big sort of directors from that, you know, um, from the last 50 years were, would come and, and do these extraordinary workshops with us. And so I learned loads, but I also made some really good contacts. And at the end of that um, two years, I was given a placement to go and be an assistant director at the Oxford Stage Company, which was with, um, where John Retallick, um was was working at the time as the artistic director. And he'd seen me in this workshop that we'd done and um, had kind of offered me this job to go and be his assistant. So I went sort of straight out from the MA and, and into um, professional work, which was fantastic. Oh, that, that's great. And what? so what did you do when you were at Oxford? Do you remember the directors you worked on, the shows? Did you get to make yeah. there yourself or were you were you just an assistant? I was an assistant director, but I, so I worked on, um, I did my placement on a show called Love is a Drug, which was a Commedia dell'arte show. And I was there sort of with them for about a week, I think, just observing. And then I went back to do... Um, I, do. I did a show called Making the Future, which was four new plays 
aimed at young people. And part of my job was to do, um, was to develop the education work around the shows. And then once we went on tour, I would um, go to the touring location that the show was coming to, do workshops in the schools in preparation for the show, and then the kids would go and see the show in the following week. So I was sort of, so I, I, there were moments when I crossed over with the actors, but quite often half my week, I'd be in the next venue preparing people. And then, so I was great. I had a little car that the company paid for and I traveled all over the country to all these little places, went into schools, did these amazing workshops with these kids, and then would see them all kind of come and visit the show when once the actors all arrived. Um, so I did that. And then I did a um, similar thing for The Provoked Wife, which was, um, so Making the Future was Carl James and John Metallica directed those shows. And then Making the Future, a director called Sue Colvard did The Provoked Wife. So I worked with her and did a very similar thing on developing um, education work. And, you know, it was kind of, um, the education work was really interesting because I I did have to kind of create my own little world and one of the things I did for the Provoked Wife was with one group we would do um, the whole of the plot of the Provoked Wife in kind of four minutes which was all set to music and would happen on the show on the stage before curtain up um, as a little pre-show show. Um, (laughs) That sounds remarkable. Yeah, so you know, there was sort of uh, it was there was lots of scope for me to develop my skills um, through you know doing that education work, which was fantastic, as well as being able to be in the rehearsal room and learn from watching really good directors at work. And then from there, I went on to the Royal Shakespeare Company and was an assistant director there for a while. So I think I spent about five years as an assistant, actually uh, assisting all sorts of amazing people. And were you were you making alongside that assisting, or or did or did that come a little bit later for you? No, that came a bit later. I I mean I was, it was interesting. I sort of was quite happy actually to be a bit of a sponge. Um, I think I did. I think I decided I'd done a couple of little fringe things, which had been not terribly successful. I would say partly because I couldn't get the caliber of actor that I wanted partly from sort of just hubris and not necessarily doing the right thing or the right play or, you know, I was still sort of finding my feet. And and I think I felt that I could spend a long time throwing money at fringe productions and nobody would ever come and see it and I wouldn't necessarily get the designer that I wanted or the, you know, the actors that I wanted. So I think in the end I decided that the best thing for me was to go be an assistant director in these big companies, watch the best actors at work, work in the room with the best directors and arm myself with a kind of toolkit. Um, and some sometimes I'd work with directors and I think, well I don't I don't understand if I don't understand what you've just said, I you know, then uh, and I can see that a lot of the actors don't understand what you've just said here. I'm not sure that that's an effective means of communication and that doesn't feel like a no anyone can play. So it was really interesting not just seeing be people be brilliant with actors but also see, seeing people be not so brilliant with actors there were a lot of very academic I would call academic directors working you know at various places and I I I'm not that kind of director and I just found that very alien and didn't necessarily see it yield great results either so it was really good time for me just to learn and sieve um 
and develop my own kind of strategy, I think. And um, you touched on it a little bit previously when we were talking about the um, von Kleist essay. But in your in your opinion, what what is it that makes a good note? Well, I think it has to be something which is playable to the actor. Uh, quite often, I bring people back to what what are you what do you want here? What is what are you trying to do in this moment? What are you trying to achieve? What's your obstacle? It's often to do with uh, you know finding that action. And that's very and being very specific um, in that moment. Sometimes it might be a sense memory thing or an emotional thing that I'm looking for. Um, and it's really interesting. Um, I think doing television has made me a much better theatre director, um, despite the fact I haven't actually done any theatre for a couple of years now. I I certainly noticed having done, I've now done television for over ten years, and. And I noticed that because in television I have to be so quick, I, you know, when you get an instinct, your instinct will sort of scream at you that you need to do something. I have to act on that. If I don't act on it, the moment's gone, the scene's finished, and it's in the can and it's done. So that listening to my gut and reacting and, and acting on that has become really, I'm really fast at that now. And I also feel that... Um, the process of the edit that I've been doing in television is always about where's the story, where do I want the audience to look, what's happening on you know that I, that everybody needs to look at, and because I make those decisions in the edit, I now do that in the rehearsal room, so I know where the story needs to be with which character, and everybody has to focus that moment on stage. So it's actually made me sort of edit in the re- in rehearsal, which is which is quite uh, odd that that's happened, actually. But it means that that I'm now quicker in the rehearsal room as well. I used to do a lot of navel-gazing and worrying about stuff and, you know, um, not making decisions immediately and, and ruminating on things. And there's still a, a certain amount of that that happens, but I think now I know where the story is and what it needs to be. And once I've explored it and found it, it's about really focusing and harnessing that moment so that it's really clear that's where the audience should look. So that's been really useful, I think. I'm, I'm conscious that um, when I've been having these conversations and often when you uh, hear a successful person talk it, uh, or you look at a list of a person's achievements or their CV, it can all seem quite inevitable. Uh, but I'm equally aware that uh, obviously for a lot of emerging theatre directors, it doesn't feel like it will, uh, you know, like those uh, steps of progression will ever happen. And um, obviously for successful people, one must assume it felt like that as well. So I wonder was there a time in your career where you thought oh yes this is this is definitely it now this is the right thing for me it's 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 going to happen as it were uh, no I don't think I've ever <laughs> I particularly <laughs> felt that I suppose I am a bit more now because I'm older and and I know I'm I know now that I'm good at what I do and so I'm very confident in what I do but I've only really got to that I suppose in the last four or five years I think before that I was I was always full of full of doubt I mean I used to, I remember sort of saying to somebody you know oh god I, I I watch all these other directors and they're they're sort of so full of um nerves about what they do and I don't really feel like that but it, I worry that I'm being lazy because I don't feel nervous about the work that I'm doing and I remember them saying to me have you ever considered that you're just really good at it <laughs> I was like, oh, no, 
no, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you're always being... We, I think when you are a creative person, you always doubt your creativity all the time. It's part of that. You know, it is part of that. Whereas I do think now that I've started to know that I... That I um, I mean, I still have moments of doubt. Obviously, we all do. But I do have a kind of be a bedrock now of knowing that I'm good at what I do because the shows that I'm working on, every time I'm working on something new, it's a bit of a step up. And, and it, you know, I've everybody's always been thrilled with the work that I've done for them. So, you know, until that uh, changes, touch wood that it doesn't, I'm going to feel confident about it. But, yeah, I th and I think particularly in the theatre, I found being a freelance theatre director incredibly difficult because not that I particularly, I mean, I sort of wanted to be an artistic director for the security of it, but I didn't really want to have the conversations about the toilets or, you know, make five-year plans for the Arts Council or, you know, get into big budget conversations. That's really not, you know, I know it's something that artistic directors have to do, but I it would be the bit that I would find much more challenging. But it's the the making of the work and the assembling the artists and getting the company companies together is the stuff that really interests me and and the fact that every project is different and the variety it was the exciting thing to me but I did find it incredibly difficult constantly going to theatres with you know trying to kind of sell yourself and pitch pitch for um pitch for jobs and you know for the sake you know in order to be rewarded with sort of you know, five or six grand if you were lucky at the end of that. I just found it sort of soul-destroying. And, you know, and I got to the point where I was doing Merchant of Venice at Shakespeare's Globe. I'd been working on it for almost six months. Um, I was absolutely on the minimum wage. I was, I had become a single mum. I had a, you know, a small child at home. And I was in Lidl trying to do my weekly shop for £40. Um, and I had a kind of epiphany thinking I've got all the number one press people coming next week to see my show at Shakespeare's Globe, that, you know, which holds 1,700 people per night. And here I am in Lidl trying to do my weekly shop for 40 quid. Something is wrong here. Um, and it was kind of messing with my self-esteem. And I just thought I, ha I have to find a way that I can make my career a career and not just a hobby, which is what it felt like. Um, and so at that point, that's when I started to explore the idea of doing television because I knew I had to be a storyteller and I knew I had to work with actors, but I just knew that I couldn't just do theatre because I would literally, um, you know, end up having to remortgage my house or something. That's when you made the decision to uh, build a career in television. And how, yeah. um, how how did you go about that? I mean, I mean, it's a very, very easy thing to decide, but perhaps a yeah. more difficult thing to put into practice. <laughs> I know. Well, of course, this is the ridiculous thing about it. Was I sort of thought that would be easy, but uh, it, you know, actually, that's also quite, quite hard. Um, I was very lucky. I had a contact at uh, Casualty, BBC's Casualty, and um, I rang them up and I just said, "Look, I'm thinking maybe television is something that I could do. Do you? Can I come and have a look? Can I come down and have a look and see if I think I can do it? Can I watch it being made?" I didn't know the first thing about making television. I mean, honestly, I got on down. I mean, they said yes, and I went down. Um, and I, I sat there watching. And I can remember looking at the actors on the floor, thinking, I can't hear them. 
they're not moving, what is going on? They look wooden, I don't understand. And um, and I said this to the um, script supervisor who was sitting next to me, and she said, no, no, she said, look in the monitor, Rebecca. <laughs> so I looked at the monitor and I went, oh, yes, oh, I see. Um, so it was it was just so different. Um, but I spent about two weeks shadowing a really lovely director called Ian Barnes, who was really gracious and talked to me a lot about the process. And I went and sat in his edit suite while his editor was assembling his work. And I talked to the actors and I learned about what everybody else did on, on the floor because there were so many people. And I, you know, worked out who was doing what in the crew and and everything. And I sort of, having thought I'd find it a bit boring, I sort of realized that it was just like a big visual jigsaw. I sort of rather fell in love with it, actually. And then... I decided that I probably needed to do a little bit of training if I could. So I was talking to a friend of mine, Claire uh, Lawrence Moody, who is a producer and an actor. And her father is a, a television director called Lawrence Moody. And she said, well, my dad does sometimes train people. I could, why don't you meet him and have a cup of coffee? So I went to meet Lawrence and he said, well, yes, I've got a gap. If you want, you can come to my house and... I will um, give you some training in, you know, how to make television. So I spent the sort of end of my savings um, with Lawrence learning how to um, how to be a television director. So we did things like we learned about the grammar of the shot. It was basically film school in a couple of weeks. Um, we watched various episodes of some of the quick telly shows that he thought I would be, you know, kind of entry-level shows that I'd be potentially making. So we'd watch the show, he'd give me a script, he'd give me a floor plan of the set, he'd say, okay, um, stage the actors on the floor plan, put in the cameras where you think the cameras need to be, then we'll do a camera script to work out what camera's doing what shot, and um, and we'll, you know, um, we'll then look at that as, as you're seen. Um, and so I, I sort of spent a couple of weeks with him doing that kind of thing. Um, and then managed to get myself um, a meeting at BBC Birmingham, which is where they made Doctors, which was the sort of entry-level BBC show. Um, and I'm not quite sure how I managed to get that meeting, but I think I just I just sort of emailed until they let me in. Um, <laughs> and had a meeting with Mike Hobson, and at the end of, who was the series producer, and at the end of that meeting, I said to him, okay, so when are you going to give me a gig? Because I was so naive about the whole thing. And he said, oh, oh, well, with respect, most of the paperwork in my office is from young directors wanting a gig. And I said, yeah, but come on. I've directed for the Royal Shakespeare Company. I'm sure I can manage a bit of lunchtime telly, to which his sort of mouth fell open. But I was so determined. You know, I'd really risked everything. I'd spent the last of my savings training to do this. If it didn't work, I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I, I it sort of had to work. So I I remember saying to him, okay, well, I can see that you're nervous. I know it's a very fast show. Why don't I come and shadow up here? I'll I'll shadow the director, see if I think it's too fast, and then we'll take it from there. How about that? And he, he said, he said, okay. I think really to get rid of me, he said, yes, all right, we'll organize some shadowing. So we organized a couple of days shadowing. Um, and one of the directors was a director called Ian Barber, whose wife, Rachel, worked at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I think Ian had seen some of my work when I had directed there. So we had, 
you know, because Doctors is made at BBC Birmingham, Stratford's not that far. There were quite, there were quite a lot of crossovers. I think one of, one or two of the makeup ladies on Doctors were also from had worked at Stratford, so there were little kind of crossovers. And anyway, at the end of that experience, I then emailed him again and I said, "Look, I'll get booked up in the theatre, which tend to book you quite far in advance. So if I'm going to capitalise on my shadowing experience, you need to book me really quickly to do a block of Doctors." And I think this was sort of May time. Um, that I'd done the shadowing. And I just kept bombarding him with emails, basically, f- for the next, every sort of couple of weeks for about a, for about six weeks. And then eventually he came back to me and he said, all right, are you free in August? And I said, yes, I am. And so I went, I guess August was a time when most people were on holiday, so they had, they had gaps for new directors. And I went and directed my first block of doctors. And I was halfway through my first scene when I realized I'd never said the word cut before. <laughs> which I was sort of more nervous about sounding like a you know a wanker to be frank um <laughs> and which is what I thought I would sound like when I said it uh than I was about actually directing the actors or getting the shots you know it was quite strange but um I learned so much by doing that show it was a real baptism by fire it's so fast and you have to be quick and you have to make decisions quickly and if you run out of time you have to think okay, how can I stage this scene quickly to get the story out, to get, you know, to make the most of the scene, but I don't have time to do lots of different camera angles. And that meant you were essentially staging it within a proscenium arch. So my theatre background actually stood me in really good stead because I could work with the actors. I could walk them into their close-up if necessary, you know, for their important moments. And, And I managed to nail the schedule and nail the story. And that was the important thing. And so I kind of went back and I would do a play and I would do a block of doctors. I would do a play, I would do a block of doctors. And I was doing both things for sort of about a year, I think, before I moved on and did, I think I then did the multi-camera course and learned how to do that for um, EastEnders. Um, and was kind of, did a lot of the sort of BBC continuing dramas for two or three years to kind of hone my, my skills and learn about the business. I wonder now if we can just uh, switch focus and talk a little bit about process. Um, and if in, if we can just talk about your work in the theatre. Yeah. Can you tell us what does the first week in your rehearsal room look like? Well, I, I mean, it sort of depends what you're doing, but pretty much I would say the first week in my rehearsal room is around the table. And it's mm-hmm. very much, it's a combination, actually. It's a combination of being around the table and really looking at the script and focusing in on um, the meaning, the subtext, um, the actions, what people want, their objectives, their um, obstacles, all of that really detailed work where no one has to worry physically about what they're doing. They can just, we could just get inside the characters and their relationships with each other via the text and explore that and dissect that. And then in tandem with that, I will probably be also doing some explorative physical work, um, often with me and my movement director, possibly some improvisation, which is also physically based. When I, I was trying to think that when I did the Night Watch at Manchester Royal Exchange, that's what we did. It was a real combination between exploring a kind of physical world for the characters and the themes of the play that I wanted to look at, and and then also some bit of singing and some some dance, a little bit of dancing as well. And sort of, so we, it's been really about setting off every process that's going to be required that will all then come together for the 
for the final piece. Um, but that's what the first week would look like before I then get into kind of what I would call staging. Just to unpick what you said about physical improvisation a little bit, do you? I'm assuming you don't mean movement work there. What what are those improvisations? What's their basis, and what are you looking for? Well, sometimes they are movement work, really. I mean, it it they are they're often so whatever the play is about. So, for example, with the Night Watch, I it was a play about memory. It's a play that's told, it's not based on a novel by Sarah Waters, where it, where the story is told backwards. So you start at, uh, you start at the end and you go back to the beginning. And, um, and really the story is like an onion being unpeeled. And it's also very much about, about memory. And I wanted to explore, it's about memory, it's about pain, it's about paralysis because of pain. And it's about being finding people kind of locked into those moments of painful paralysis, which is to do with remembering something or holding on to something. And so I wanted to explore physically what those moments were and how they manifested themselves on stage and in the through the characters. And so I looked a lot. We spent a lot of time looking at. You know that moment, you know, when you're you're in the middle of doing something and you suddenly catch yourself staring out of the window or staring into space or you've sat down on your bed to put your sock on but you haven't actually achieved it and five minutes later you you think, oh, fuck, I better put my sock on because you've yeah. gone somewhere else. It was that, really. You're describing where, most of my day there. Yes. <laughs> where do you go? Where do you go when you got you get lost in a thought or a memory? And and what does that physically do to you? How does it change your breathing? How does it change your posture? Where what is that? You know, and you can only really see that in relation to activity. So it was it was so we just, we spent a lot of time exploring that sense of 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 just we just set up lots of very mundane ordinary activities. I think which was you know might be to do with getting dressed or whatever, and then we arrested that activity to explore something that was very much to do with stasis and paralysis and emotion and memory. Um, and so that was a sort of whole physical journey, which ended up, um, we ended up finding a kind of chorus of non-characters around our characters who were, as if because it was set during the war, they became the people that were walking with us, the people that were no longer here that were walking with us. They became a sort of embodiment of memory as well, those people. So, and that all came out of exploration work that we we'd done. Some of which we'd done it actually in a in a week that we'd had once I'd cast it. But before rehearsals began, I think I had a little R and D week, a sort of two or three, maybe even six weeks before we went into rehearsals. And some of which was then pushed further in that first week of rehearsal. And then. I what was great about that was I got the sound designer to get involved with that, and he then made a sort of a memory landscape through sound that was also um, related to what the actors were doing and what they'd been exploring physically. So it's it's that's the sort of thing. I mean, I try and rather than having to get actors make up lots of dialogue in their improvisations, which always ends up being a bit cringeworthy. It's it's not. It doesn't tend to be a verbal improvisations. It te they tend to be physical and emotional improvisations that I do. It depends what you're doing, obviously. I think if I was devising something from scratch, then maybe um, a vocal, the vocal improvisations would be more useful. But 
actually for me it was really about trying to find um, a physical language around the piece that I was doing. Brilliant. That's fascinating. Thank you very much. Um, I just have a couple of quick questions to finish off, Rebecca, if that's all yeah. right. Um, can you tell us about the last work of art that absolutely blew your mind? Uh, you, do you mean a picture or do you mean a... No, no. I'm, by art, I mean film, theatre, music, oh. anything. Oh, my goodness. Hang on. Well, um, I... Oh, Jesus. I was, I've remembered it and forgotten it. I've just... It was there. It was just there. There's lots of things that I've seen recently that have absolutely blown my mind. But um, I absolutely loved Parasite, if you saw the, that film. Yeah, I found absolutely. That, I found that extraordinary. Um, you know, I love stuff when it's funny as well as it as well as being intensely serious. I thought the way that the the way that it was shot, the way that the house was a character in that uh, film as well, the environment that they'd very carefully created was extraordinary, um, and the sort of message of it I, I found amazing. And then I saw a wonderful documentary, which his name is going to escape me now recently about two brothers who had two twin brothers who one of whom um, had been abused and he never knew did you see it what was it called it's on Netflix oh my god it had me in bits that's really awful because I'll have to try and remember the title of it and I can't um, and there's something else which is the one that I've forgotten which I can't remember but it's it would be the answer it would be the proper answer to your question but I <laughs> I'll remember it in a minute. The, the, Ask me a different question the, and I'll remember it. <laughs> is the documentary you're talking about Three Identical Strangers? No. It's something no. like, it's, it's it's called something like, something to do with getting to know you or something. It's really extraordinary. And again, that's to do with memory and loss of memory and lack of memory and the fact that somebody, a, bro a brother has protected the other brother from this awful thing. Tell me who I am. That's it. That's it. Tell me who I am. Oh, my God. I just wept through it. It was wonderful. It was so candid. It was so truthful and so candid. I didn't know how they had managed to do that with a camera there. That was what was extraordinary about it. They had just allowed a camera in and they was, there was no sense of, of, um, of any performance or any guardedness at all. It, it was so natural in front of the camera and I thought that was a really really wonderful example of two people just being um, which is what you're always trying in television to get your actors to rather than act they're just trying to get people to be and and it, it because it was so truthful I found it so unbelievably painful to watch but it was extraordinary yeah I was listening to uh, an interview the other day with um, Mark Duplass you know one of the um, one of the filmmakers who's the founder of the one of the early exponents of the mumblecore movement. They made the puffy chair and then uh, oh. they made a series for HBO. Uh, and he, he was talking about um, the process of um, making his films. And he was saying, well, all I'm trying to do is I'm aspiring to make fiction in the state of a documentary. And I thought that yeah. was really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he was, he was talking about for him, that goes as far as like the composition of the frame and how in documentaries, you don't know where the important bit is going to be. So it's not always, you know, front and center. He's, he's, he'll, you know, he'll do things like have important things happening in corners or only half seen or, and I thought, it, yeah, it was a really, and his, um, I think to watch his films, you really experience that. And it's a, uh, it's a real, a real treat of, uh, of filmmaking his work yeah. because it feels so, uh, well, like it's lived, like it's lived in. 
Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and and often it's about also engaging your audience so that they have to do some work. So you're not just spoon feeding people, you know, um, but you're you're thinking, you know, where is the story and how can I get the audience to find that story? So it's not it's not always about as you say putting things front and center. It it is about uh, you know, and being surprising with your cut and with your you know sometimes it's, it's shocking people with the way that you cut images together and things. Um, but it, yeah, it, it, it is complete. It's, it is fascinating, particularly the, the sort of performance thing as well. Is you know, if I can, you just don't. The camera can see it if it's artificial. You can get away with it on stage because you're, the audience are further away. But you can absolutely see it if it's not really uh, truthful. And that's been really interesting for me. Also, the listening thing. You know, the 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 camera isn't always on the person that's talking and it shouldn't be because often the scene is not about the person talking it's about the person receiving information and and that is that is also very interesting um and you can you know that you can tell the actors who aren't used to that and the actors who absolutely understand that it's, you know it's wonderful to, to see that um like the quality of listening that you get in reaction on, on screen is fantastic if you get really good people doing it and that's that's you know that's uh, I love exploring that with, with the actors that sort of truthfulness um finally Rebecca you may have already covered it but can you recommend something for us to all enjoy while we're social distancing oh well um what am I enjoying at the moment <laughs> at the moment I'm in I am watching um the Mrs Maisel thing on oh, yes the marvelous mrs maisel the marvelous mrs maisel and i'm really enjoying that it's great fun it's really great fun um i'm it, i'm loving watching a woman in i think it's set in the 50s isn't it watching this woman sort of struggle with this sort of ridiculous gender politics and uh you know strive to go out on her, on her own and have a career and all of that it's just it's hilarious you know and she's so hilarious it's it's so i'm yeah, I'm watching that at the moment. I'm only on about episode four, but I'm absolutely loving it. It's like a little treat in the evening to go and watch that. <laughs> so I'm hoping that will pan out to be uh, just as much fun. I think I've got. I think I might even have. A, might even be two or three seasons of it. So I'm very excited about that. Excellent, Rebecca. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. No problem. Lovely to talk to you as well. Take care. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghamplayhouse.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released.